Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather. From Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. Market's focus really is on the cow-calf sector. Oklahoma livestock economist Dr. Daryl Peel. Cattle numbers are low. We've talked about that in the past. The inventory report showed that. And so there, there is a real need to rebuild the cow herd once again. We've been through this before. The market is providing those incentives in terms of especially higher calf prices. And, uh, you know, we haven't really done it yet, but I think from this point forward, producers will begin to uh, think about how they participate in that market. And uh, that means saving some heifers going forward. Obviously, it's going to depend on weather conditions. And we're in generally better shape now, but uh, there is certainly still some risk of reemerging drought as we go forward. So that'll be one of the factors we have to keep an eye on from this point forward. This is Agriculture Today. Secretary Vilsack, uh, you were the secretary in 2010, correct? Yes, sir. Recently, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack appearing before the House Ag Committee and Austin Scott, representative from Georgia. In 2010, SNAP was approximately 67% of USDA funding and 33% of USDA funding went to other sources, whether it be farming, commodity production, or conservation. Is that correct? I don't have those specific numbers, but I'm sure that you you do, Congressman, so I'll acknowledge you. Well, thank you. And so, as I understand it today, and I expect you will have these numbers, that approximately 80% would go to SNAP and approximately 20% would go to all of the other expenditures of the USDA. Is that correct? I I don't know whether that's correct or not, Congressman, but I'll... You're kidding me. the sake of this conversation... You're the Secretary of Agriculture and you don't know what the pie chart of your budget looks like? I know that there is a significant percentage of our budget is focused on on nutrition assistance of Mm -hmm. a multitude of different programs. It's not just SNAP. It's also WIC. It's it's the school lunch program. It's the assistance of food banks. I'm talking about food and nutritional programs being 80%. Okay. Well, that's more than SNAP. And food and nutritional programs were included in the 67% before. Okay. Okay. But you understand what I'm getting at? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So so that leaves 20% instead of 33% for conservation, production, agriculture, all of the other things that the USDA does. Just simple math. Less than 10% of your total USDA funding now is going to go to production agriculture. Is that correct? Uh, Congressman, I don't know if that's correct or not. What's the point? What do you, what, 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 just get you. Well, my question for you is what do you, what percentage of what you receive at the USDA should actually go to production agriculture? My, my point is you talk about the loss of the family farm. Well, starving farmers don't get to plant the food to feed hungry people. Well, the reality and, is uh, it's not about planting food, we, we are doing a great job of that. American farms, uh, farmers are the best in the world at that. We've seen a remarkable increase in productivity with inputs basically maintaining, uh, and actually there's a wonderful Let me, let me read, let me read right something to you from a... Uh, productivity. Well, let me, it's my time, so let me read this to you from a good, good farmer. This isn't someone that inherited. This is someone who built their own family farm. This year reminds me a lot of the early 1980s. I had a bit more optimism in my 20s than in my 60s, making plans on which piece of land to sell off and get stable for the bumpy ride for agriculture. We had record this income is- the last three years, Congressman. We had record income. And, but the problem no, sir, you did not. was concentrated. 21 and 22 were good, but 23 was bad. You no, lost it, over the 23 was, no, number. No, 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 it was not bad. It was actually above the historic average. The three it was years a significant total, fall best, off. Best three years in 50 years, for sure. Best, I think the best years from a net cash income ever. So, Secretary Vilsack, have you talked to any farmers I about how much fertilizer costs, have, about how much sir. diesel costs, about the, the cost of land rent because of net what you've done with solar subsidies and everything farm else? Income, highest ever, highest ever. 
The problem is it's concentrated in the hands of the large operators. And I've got nothing against production agriculture and large operators. We need them. The question is, what are we doing about Secretary the other 90%? Secretary Vilsack, approximately 90% of the food supply comes from, from about 10% of the farms uh, in this country. I don't country. think that's quite accurate, but go ahead. Well, what would you say was accurate with it? Uh, I think it's uh, in the neighborhood of 85% or so. 85% then comes from 10, 10% of the farms. That's 85% of the food supply for the American citizens. What does food cost today versus, versus what it did before the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act, as you call it? Well, the, the good news is, and I, I, I alluded to it. There is no good news there. It's uh, food inflation is down. Grocery store price inflation year over year is 1.3 percent, the lowest it's been in t- since 2021. And ERS predicts that it's going to be uh, decreased this year. In if it falls another 25 percent, it'll be back where it was before y'all got there. It's agriculture today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. What has been reported for quite some time now, uh, at least in news stories and, and, and comments, but uh, what I think is most important and telling about this is we've yet to see actually any proposal for an increase in reference prices. We've just seen reports that there's a demand uh, by some interest to increase reference prices, but we don't know which crops, what levels, you know, what that costs. University of Illinois farm policy expert and former administrator of USDA's Farm Service Agency, Jonathan Coppas. As rough as we can tell based on just, you know, guesswork about what a reference price increase might look like, we could be talking about a, a, a CBO estimated cost of 20 to $50 billion because the Congressional Budget Office has to project the spending estimates over 10 years. So it's a huge potential cost. It requires not only the 10-year, you know, peek into the unknown future uh, as to what prices will be and, and, and sort of how that would play out. Um, but the, the budget rules also require offsets. So problem number one is this is a huge request with no details, and we don't know what it would cost or how it would be offset. Some of the reporting out of the House, and, and yesterday Secretary Vilsack was before the House Agriculture Committee, and it just came up a few times, uh, where there's a focus on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's that direct assistance to low-income individuals and households to buy food and some look at conservation spending. So this is a big driver of the, of the sort of failure to launch uh, a farm bill reauthorization process. Um, complicating this further are the charts that we already went through, which is uh, corn and soybeans in particular. We're going to see that effective reference price moving up. So how that impacts this decision and, and you know, what kind of priority it is to move up reference prices when the effective calculation is going to move them up anyway, at least for a, lo- a good portion of the, of the crops and base acres. Um, complicates this. If we jump ahead, the second problem, of course, then comes down to that offset issue. And so one of the things that that has been talked about is the conservation investments that were added into or included in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Uh, This was a large piece of uh, legislation that funded um, a whole host of things around um, climate uh, change adaptation or climate change efforts, energy, and so forth. Uh, but tucked in there was about $18 billion in um, additional funding for the for four of the major conservation programs, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or EQIP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, or CSP, the Agriculture Conservation Easement Program, or ASEP, and then the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, RCPP. All four of these programs are authorized in the Farm Bill and funded through the Commodity Credit Corporation, or the CCC. And so what you see on this chart in figure one here is the sort of baseline. Again, this is from May of 23. So this has been updated, um, but hasn't changed uh, too significantly, at least upon an initial first look. 
Uh, you've got the baseline spending. These are the, the CCC dollars that are authorized by a farm bill and go out as mandatory spending in the baseline. And then the Inflation Reduction Act added funding on top of that. So what you see above that black line then is the, the projected spending or spend out rate of those uh, Inflation Reduction Act funds that are available through 2031. So USDA has until 2031 to spend them all. Uh, and you can just see they're, uh, they're, they're just adding up uh, to additional investments and in conservation for farmers over that time frame uh, on top of what's already there in the farm bill. What makes this complicated is if you see that additional funding as something that can be, um, you know, eliminated or taken out and used as an offset. And so we'll get into a few more uh, aspects of that detail uh, or a few more details of that sort of offset discussion. But it is clearly a political challenge that we're seeing uh, to moving a farm bill or getting a farm bill started if, you know, the demand for increasing reference prices requires taking money from these other priorities like conservation. It's agriculture today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. In Florida, we have uh, hurricanes that have only gotten worse over the years with climate change. Uh, Hurricane Ian recently led to over a billion dollars in agriculture losses. Florida Representative Darren Soto, member of the House Ag Committee with Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. We've passed out of this House a bipartisan disaster block grant authority. Uh, this was the is the top priority for Florida Farm Bureau. Uh, do you think this would help going forward? I know the Senate didn't pass it yet, um, especially to help both our ranchers and particularly citrus as we uh, face these increasing storms. We'll be happy to administer it if it gets passed. Right now, we don't have the authority to do that. I know Florida is anxious to have it. Um, if that's the wish of Congress, we will certainly follow it and do whatever we can to make sure it's administered properly. And, Mr. Secretary, we want to give you that authority. Uh, also representing cattle country, I just wanted to stress the importance of uh, continuing to invest in the National Vaccine Bank. Uh, that has come up several times for several different uh, types of livestock. We have the largest herd in the nation in uh, Deseret Ranch in our area, along with many other ranches and cow-calf operations. So that's really important. Uh, I've also visited places like Second Harvest in Central Florida, our food bank, that had to spend $2.5 million last year to fill the TFAP gap. Uh, how critical to feeding America's families uh, is the emergency food assistance program? Well, it's essential. It's an essential tool that when demand goes up or, or there's a, a, a regional uh, tragedy that, occur, that occurs, it's an opportunity for us to be able to respond quickly to provide the resources for those food banks to meet the need. So it's critically important. Well, I've seen both seniors, children, the disabled, our veterans uh, coming to these food banks uh, to get healthy, nutritious food, and the TFAP program has been absolutely uh, critical for us. Uh, in addition, uh, we are, after many years, finally turning the corner in Florida Citrus. I appreciate your dedication over the years, both uh, under the Obama administration, now under the Biden administration, uh, to work with us on uh, this uh, research and development funding. We're seeing great advancements with new uh, herbicides that are and uh, pesticides that are helping out with new trees, especially injections. So I wanted to thank you for the waiver that you all provided to allow these uh, these areas to go forward. How critical is it for us to continue to make sure we have U.S. grown citrus, whether it's orange juice from Florida or um, eating fruit from California and other areas to protect America's vitamin C source? Well, I think it's, it, it's connected to the health and welfare of, uh, of American uh, Americans and specifically American children. You know, we're trying to encourage more fruits and vegetable consumption, and obviously to the extent that we do so, it'd be nice if we can provide them something that's produced here in the U.S. Well, we're going to try to dig deep to get this done. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is um, in my family's native island of Puerto Rico, along with many other territories, they are under the NAP program, trying to move them to the SNAP program. Uh, 
First, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce a bipartisan letter from uh, Representative Jennifer Gonzalez-Colón and myself uh, just talking about the needs of the NAP program. Without objection. Thank you. Um, there's been some debate about whether there needs to be legislation or just funding uh, to convert NAP to SNAP. Do, do you happen to have any opinion on that or any advice on how we proceed going forward? Well, I, I think there is legislation that's required, but I think more importantly uh, is making sure that Puerto Rico in particular uh, is prepared for that transition. Uh, it's not a simple process to administer the SNAP program, and we have been working with officials in Puerto Rico to get them to a point where they're ready, willing, and able uh, to administer the program effectively so their folks won't fall through the cracks. Well, we're absolutely thrilled by that. In Central Florida, one in four of my constituents are fellow Puerto Ricans. We care deeply about what's happening on the island as well as uh, supporting our local growers, ranchers uh, in cattle, citrus, blueberry, and strawberry country uh, and making sure no, no Central Florida family goes hungry. So I appreciate your leadership, Mr. Secretary, and thanks for being here. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here. Recently, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack before the House Ag Committee and Arkansas Representative Rick Crawford. How often do you interact with the President's Council of Economic Advisors? I'm sorry, how often? How often do you interact with that council? Uh, Actually, I interacted with the chair yesterday. Really? Yes. I I would suggest that y'all probably aren't singing from the same hymnal because you just said that Inflation was on a downward trajectory when, in fact, the Council of Economic Advisors just said that grocery stores are actually causing inflation to increase. And that, that, that was a statement that as recently as uh, February 1st. In fact, here's an article I'm happy to share with you. Biden takes aim at grocery chains over food prices. So it says here President Biden has begun to accuse stores of overcharging shoppers as food costs remain a burden for consumers and a political problem for the president. He coined the phrase, I don't know that he coined it, but he used the phrase shrinkflation to describe how packaging um, basically smaller portions in a bag charging the same price for uh, is, is having an impact on prices at the grocery store as well. So. Uh, you know, these, these, these accusations and charges and things of this nature about the evil Republicans just don't hold water. I think probably you should go revisit the Council of Economic Advisors, and maybe I'll get on the same page because we're hearing mixed messages now from you and from the Council of Economic Advisors. There wasn't a question there, Secretary. Um, <clears throat> last year when you testified before the committee, I asked you about the adverse effect wage rate. And you mentioned that at the time that you preferred a solution for the AEWR was to pass the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. And we all know that the bill had significant issues that were unrelated to the ag, uh, to the adverse effect wage rate that are, that kept it from becoming law. So I don't think that was necessarily the answer to the problem. So since you were here last year, my friend Mr. Davis and I have been, uh, uh, leading the agriculture labor working group. Um, we've been hearing from everyone and everyone has, has talked about, I'm talking, when I say everyone, I'm talking about stakeholder groups, ag employers across the country that have come in to, to share their concerns. And the prevailing sentiment was that the adverse effect wage rate continues to be a huge problem. It's an impediment to the efficient functioning of the H-2A program. Georgia, for example, has seen a more than 20% increase in the uh, AEWR in the last two years, completely unsustainable. So do you agree that Congress needs to reform AEWR in such ways to ensure predictable and sensible wage levels for H-2A employers? I think it makes sense for Congress to, if there are problems with the Farm Worker Modernization Act, to, do, to fix that and pass it, because it would create stability, it would create a range, it would create a predictability in the system. 
Um, let me ask you this, uh, changing subject real quick here. As you know, in many USDA programs, especially in rural development, there are costly and time-consuming environmental processes that ultimately end in the project being a categorical exclusion from NEPA. The current system is a barrier to entry to potential borrowers, lenders, and grantees to participate in the system. When they do, they often spend much time and money to meet paperwork requirements. All of it keeps funds from being deployed in rural America. Um, the Department of Energy has already issued rules to make charging stations and solar projects categorically excluded within the DOT and the Department of Homeland Security then adopted for their departments. My question is what, what steps is USDA taking to implement the statutory categorical exclusions listed in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, specifically loan guarantees, and if no action has been taken yet, when can we expect actions to be taken by USDA to implement those provisions? We use categorical uh, exclusions uh, on a regular basis in our programs. When there's an opportunity to use it, we do use it. I'm particularly uh, aware of how often we use it in the Forest Service in order to move processes along. Okay. Eighty-five percent of the activities that we've done in our Forest Service the last three years have used CE. So we're not um, opposed to using it. We actually look for opportunities to use it. Oh, I hope that's true because I have some um, constituents that are highly concerned with that. It's agriculture today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. If there is a path, you know, if there is a chance uh, for a farm bill in 2024, what might it look like? University of Illinois farm policy expert, former administrator of USDA's Farm Service Agency, Jonathan Coppas. And I want to be really clear, this is not a prediction uh, in any way, shape, or form of how this will play out. This is kind of my attempt to say, okay, uh, all those challenges in front of us, what might it look like if we were to make progress? February, we're halfway through it. Nothing's gotten done, and maybe even worse, the the fight over immigration and border security and the funding for Ukraine, Israel, and other uh, national security issues um, uh, is demonstrating yet again uh, a challenge in getting legislation through, particularly anything that's complex and uh, involves a lot of funding, which is a great way to describe a farm bill. So February's out. March, uh, we have the CR issues on the 1st and the 8th. So if Congress doesn't do something, and that uh, something would either be passing uh, any of the or all of the appropriation bills that have yet to make it through either chamber. Uh, if they don't get that done, we've got to do another extension of the CR. And if we don't get that done, um, and the CR just stands for continuing resolution, which really is is a, an appropriation uh, uh, kind of Band-Aid, right? If you don't pass the annual appropriations bills, then the continuing resolution just basically reads as continue the funding levels from the year prior. Um, and so that was uh, what we've been operating under since October 1st. Uh, they were set to expire in November. They were extended to February. February now extended to March 1st and 8th. If there's something not done by March 1st or 8th, we go into government shutdown territory, which really will disrupt everything. So stay tuned on that one. Uh, March may also be a time in which the House Agriculture Committee could begin uh, its process. Uh, we could see legislation possibly, maybe even uh, working towards a markup on that legislation. April, May is a pretty critical time frame. Um, we expect a new Congressional Budget Office baseline, so a new 10-year projection to come out sometime in that frame. In that time frame, now we're talking. Uh, you know, the House Agriculture Committee, pres- you know, presumably in the April, May time frame, if they haven't moved in March, starts the floor uh, in the House is obviously a much bigger question. Does the Senate Ag Committee get started sometime in that time frame as well? Again, we've not seen proposals or legislation uh, uh, put forward yet. But April, May becomes a very critical time frame, in part because the new CBO baseline may become applicable uh, if they don't move prior to that. So a lot of these kind of weird inside the, the legislative game uh, aspects that have to be dealt with um, 
in the next couple of months. By the time we get to June, I, I think June's our last best chance to see anything happen. Uh, if, um, if we're going to make any progress at all, in fact, you'd really like to see at least one of these bills make it to one of the chamber floors because by July we're hitting the convention season, the presidential nominating conventions. And then through November, it's the election season. And, uh, Congress is not going to be getting anything substantive done. Uh, there's a big question about funding the, uh, the government again with, with the federal fiscal year ending on September 30th. So we've got a whole chunk of the legislative calendar that, uh, that normally would be available that will not. If they make any progress in any one of these stages, enough to actually have a viable sort of legislative vehicle to look at, then there's an outside chance that any kind of lame duck Congress after the November elections could have worked through the differences and issues. But this is only possible, one, if there's an actual lame duck conference, uh, a lame duck Congress that has any real uh, substantive work uh, that's not consumed by funding or other issues. And uh, in order to do anything the lame duck, um, I would think both committees will have probably had to at least have marked up legislation. So there's something to negotiate and work through. Um, I, I don't think you can start doing a whole sort of farm bill from scratch in a lame duck scenario. The other thing the lame duck may provide is, is an extension. It's agriculture today. Ag news. Now agriculture today. Wiregrass in Western Alabama are struggling to stay whole after a serious drought in recent months. Alabama Representative Barry Moore, member of the House Ag Committee with Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. Peanut producers are feeling a pinch of slimmer than ever margins and uh, are only met with resistance by our Democratic counterparts when any suggestion is made to adjust Title I to meet the needs of modern-day production. I think it is, this, it is disappointing that these producers do not feel supported by the current administration we have in place and who would rather play favorites with ERP, grab every tax dollar they can for SNAP, and pander to radical social environmental justice agendas. It seems the agency is putting politics before policy, and quite frankly, our farmers, ranchers, foresters, and rural communities certainly deserve better. Um, first question I have is the executive action at the Environmental Protection Agency, General Services Administration, and the Department of Interior, Interior have recently been announced, which are adverse or do not consider the work of your agency and its constituents. Secretary Vilsack, how are you making good faith attempt to give agriculture a voice across this executive branch? Well, I have an ongoing relationship with each one of those, the secretaries of each one of those uh, departments, and we are in constant communication about policies and issues that they are adopting that may have an impact on agriculture, and we provide input. I'm certainly not going to be in a position to tell them what they should do in their department. I don't want them telling me what I should do in my department. But we do provide input. We do provide data. We do provide the consequences of what they're considering on on American agriculture. Uh, That's our job. And then once a decision is made by another department, to the extent that we can, we use the resources of USDA to try to mitigate the consequences of that. You know, I've heard the most terrifying words are we're from the government and we're here to help. And when I listen to you as the director of our department head of agriculture, the USDA, it seems like you're battling the Department of Labor for production of food or you're battling maybe the EPA to get them off the backs of local producers. And so uh, would that be true, Mr. Vilsack, that probably the most terrifying words that you ever hear is we're from the government, we're here to help? You know, let me say something about that. Uh, yeah, you know what? And I think government does help. You know, when the farmers, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the crop insurance programs, the disaster assistance programs, the ARC, the PLC, uh, the, the, the wide variety of programs that you're discussing in the Farm Bill, that is government helping. I think that the, the, the challenge is we want to make sure that government 
is helping and is efficient in the way that they are. And to your defense, I think you're trying to do the job. Sometimes I don't agree with the policies that are implemented, and I certainly am not a a big friend of some of the environmental stuff that's going on. But but I I think it seems like to me that your own government is your biggest issue sometime in trying to actually help the producers in America. And I appreciate you being in a fight for us. I hope you'll continue that. I'm sure you will. But uh, for me, more so when I listen to you talk about the Department of Labor or these regulations that you have to try to jump through these hoops so we can have food on the tables of American consumers, um, you know, to me, I, I, I almost start to understand that the battle you're in is the same battle we're in many days here is how to stop the bureaucracy and take care of the people. And so let me let me do one more question here, sir. I, I got one question. I'm running out of time. So uh, this past June, the department of, uh, announced uh, SNAP's error rate, a rate that measured overpayments and underpayments. Um, this announcement included an overpayment rate of 9.54%, which amounts to roughly $30 million a day. It's, certainly that would be an insult, Mr. Vilsack, to our taxpayers. What concrete, serious, and forward-thinking steps are on the horizon? States basically administer the program. Uh, we are working with state governors to make sure that they understand they need to get back to a more disciplined effort uh, in terms of SNAP. Uh, we sort of relaxed the flexibilities uh, or created flexibilities during the pandemic, and we're now asking them to go back to the ordinary uh, work of uh, administering SNAP, which involves, to Representative Bishop's question, face-to-face interviews, which I think will be helpful to restore integrity in the program. So we're encouraging governors, and governors, if they fail to, to respond, there are sanctions that can essentially be uh, put in place. We're concerned about this, and we should be. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. Placements in the month of January were down about 7% on a year-over-year basis. Oklahoma State Livestock Economist Dr. Daryl Peel. Marketings were just even with a year ago, and so the February 1 on-feed total was also just about even with a year ago, just fractionally higher than one year ago. Uh, You know, we've been above year-ago levels for the last several months. Uh, We built it up last fall. And uh, this represents now, I think we're past that. We're coming down as we go forward. Again, placements will probably continue to be uh, restricted. We just don't have the feeder cattle. We may see a little bit of a blip uh, in February or a little bit more than, I won't, I don't know if it'll be up, but it won't be down as much as it could be because of these wheat pasture cattle that are coming in perhaps. But all in all, feeder cattle numbers are going to tighten up sharply in the next couple of months, if not this uh, continuing this next month. 